Everyone knows in Hollywood these days, IP, intellectual property, is king and queen and monarchy and emperor and everything. If there's something you really like out there that's intellectual property, how do you get it? And how do you turn it into a movie that someone will fund? I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School and host of the No Film School podcast. And we're here today with my guests, Will Speck and Josh Gordon, who just made a movie called Lyle Lyle Crocodile. Pretty big deal movie, pretty big deal book. So we talked a lot about the intellectual property aspect of this. How did they get it? Why did they pursue it? How did they make themselves an attractive team to get this thing off the ground? These are the kinds of things a lot of filmmakers wonder because we all know that one of the easiest ways and I say easy in air quotes because we're not on video right now, even though normally the podcast is going to be coming to you video more and more frequently on our YouTube channel. Check it out. No film school on YouTube. For right now, we're just doing this audio. Anyway, sorry for the sideline there, but air quotes. That's right. Because nothing's easy in the entertainment industry and it's never easy to get a movie made. But if it's previously published material that's super popular, you might have a little bit of an edge in the room. Then again, how do you get the property? How do you option something? And how do you convince the owners of it and eventually the studios or the production companies you want to work with or the talent that you're the right person or people for the job? That's one of the main things we talked about today and a whole lot more. So here we go. Will Speck, Josh Gordon, Lyle Lyle Crocodile, the No Film School podcast. Thank you guys so much for doing this. I wanted to get started by just kind of asking where you feel like your career began in earnest. Like what sort of inspired the the very early beginnings and like got you down the path of becoming directors and working together? Like kind of what was the the genesis? Um, well, despite the name of this, uh, you know, uh, broadcast, <laughs> um, we actually met at in film school. <laughs> We sort of met in our second year at NYU Film and really became friends uh, first. And, you know, it was interesting. We, um, we ended up writing together a lot and we sort of worked on each other's projects, even though we were in different uh, classes at that point. And we sort of found this kinship. We liked the same kind of movies. We thought in the same way. And they weren't always the movies that our peers loved. I mean, we loved... Scorsese, we loved Coppola, we've loved all the big ones, but we also loved strange movies like Tootsie and, uh, you know, <laughs> comedies like Down and Out in Beverly Hills and the movie Amadeus we loved, you know, so we sort of connected over these weird movies that we both sort of reacted to. Like everybody wanted to go see Goodfellas and we were like, yeah, but you have to see King of Comedy. That's really the genius. So we kind of um, really honestly just started by working as writers together and then, and then we pooled our resources very strangely and made our senior film together, even though it made no sense to do that because we better want to work together because we were making our, our showpiece in a way that we couldn't be separated from each other. But it did very well, and we came out to L.A., and, and that kind of started us a little bit on this path. You mentioned an interesting thing, like you, you, you put all your, you guys pushed your chips to the middle together. You were kind of like, we're going to go in as a team, and we're going to be connected as a team. And a lot of times people are like, you want to 
you know, it's it's a individualized career path and you don't want to split everything and it makes it harder. Like what was kind of the beyond both agreeing that King of Comedy is amazing and you're both correct, it is, <laughs> but beyond things that, and Tootsie is amazing, but beyond those kinds of things, like what was the like, yeah, this is the right move for us. Like we will, we will do better together or was it just like, well, I think, fun? Time, like you know, I think at the time there was the Coen brothers and I think the Coen brothers at the time, they were like pop stars, you know, especially around film mm-hmm. school, you know? And so the fact that we had heard them speak, I think at one point around Hudsucker Proxy. And I think the idea that two, you know, two could do this and it wasn't sort of, you know, that you could short, sort of have a hive brain and share a sensibility was just naturally exciting to us. And again, there were lots of writer duos. So it just felt like a natural thing to extend and direct. And, you know, Josh left out that we had both made short films separately before we started working together. I think it was like our only solo work over time. You know, we ended up really in the edit relying on each other's sensibility notes and feedback to make those things better. And so it sort of felt like we were naturally doing that. Yeah, we were already kind of working together and could feel what that felt like. And then, you know, look, it's really hard to get your first work done in a way that 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 makes you happy. You know what I mean? Like, you're still trying to figure it out. And so even though it was very unorthodox, when we found a partner in that and the results were kind of there, I think we went with the results. You know what I mean? And kind of were like, well, that that worked really well. And it was great having somebody to like be my net when I forgot to do something that was really important to us or will, you know, or that I was challenged by the other one in a way creatively that I that I know if I'd done it by myself, I would have missed those opportunities. And so you kind of, you know, I think we always sort of thought in the beginning, well, I wonder how long this will last. We'll just help each other <laughs> get to the launch pad, and then we'll probably you know, work with each other on and off through the years. And then, you know, of course, all these years later, we're still doing it. We also, as Will says, we'd love to split our income. Um, so it's really it's uh, super it's really fun. Cool. To do yeah. That. yeah. That's been great. <laughs> they treat you like one guy. Yeah, <laughs> they, so how do you divide up the, um, the money sort of resp- <laughs> Yeah. No, the responsibilities, like when you're directing, like, do you have ways you feed off each other? Obviously, yeah, we have things do. that we're both, have ways- we have things that we're for sure. We have things, areas that we're both, you know, definitely interested in, in the prep, right? So, you know, Will started life as an actor and I started life as a writer. And I think we kind of both in the prep sort of sit on those areas a little bit more. And, you know, I love camera. So I'm constantly thinking about how a sequence will, so Sometimes I'll, you know, focus a little bit more on the storyboards. Will is a brilliant designer, loves, you know, loves how to, you know, work with the production designer and figure out, you know what I mean, the tone of a set, you know what I mean? But we're always like keeping the other person in our minds and we're always coming back and sharing things. But I think it allows us certainly in the prep phase to, you know, to give more time to those departments, which are often lacking in, in directoral, you know, um, you know, mm. tension. And then on set, you know, it all depends on what gets needs to get done. You know, sometimes Will will run in and and talk to the camera, grab the camera, start shooting a scene. Sometimes I'll connect better with an actor than Will does and talk to them. But so we're very, just over the years, we're just very sort of symbiotic in that way. So there's give and take, but there's also natural, like, this is kind of my, sure. like, where I'll gravitate towards a little bit more. And Will... Will loves to collect actors and is an absolutely, if he was a casting director, he would be probably the best there ever was. I mean, he really, really does. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I miss my calling. <laughs> yeah. When you are working with, because I'm going to jump ahead here, like there's a lot to talk about with your careers, but you were talking about casting. We're talking about this movie involves some very tricky elements because your star is a crocodile. And <laughs> that sort of that sort of impacts the way actors perform, that impacts the way the camera moves. You have a lot of great, ta- super talented actors working with the crocodile. But just tell me a little bit about the the whole way you approach this project from a production standpoint, because I want to talk about the adaptation a little bit too, but just like that you've got, you're on set, somebody's in kind of the mo cappy type suit, and there's a lot of elements that don't exist. There's a child actor in a lead, you know, <laughs> you're working with all the things you're not supposed to, right? Kids, yeah, exactly. animals. <laughs> so live, tell me a little a bit. Live, of- we had a live cat on set. So literally all three things you're not supposed to do, which is animals, exactly. children, and, and uh, complex visual effects. Yeah. And a complex visual effect animal who's quite childlike. Exactly. So you get it all in one. Um, I mean, I think, it, you know, our approach to the project from the very beginning was to try to make it as organic as possible and experience. I think, you know, we don't come from a visual effects background, although we've done a lot of it in in our commercial work and we just finished a film that's a science fiction and had a a whole creature that we had to design from the ground up. So we had a, you know, experience on set, but I think having been through those experiences, we wanted things to feel as tactile as possible, especially when you're dealing with a kid, especially when you're dealing with choreography and a musical number, we didn't want, you know, a guy in a green suit or a stick with a tennis ball on top of it. Um, So I think what we pushed early on was that, we would sort of bifurcate that character into two categories. One was to have an actor that was a good actor, a professional actor who was the size, shape, and feel of Lyle so that he was there for eye lines, but really as an emotional guide track, both for the actors that he was playing opposite, but also for our visual effects team and for us. You know, it was really helpful to sort of dial in where that character was preemptively on set. We didn't really use traditional motion capture in the way, say, that, you know, Lord of the Rings did it with Smeagol or something. And the reason why was because early on, you know, we realized that, you know, uh, the face of a crocodile does not match a human's face. So the mouth movements would turn the, you know, motion control into a very flappy, unuseful thing. And it's also very labored. So we ended up doing that with our actor and then having a dance double for him so that they were you know, all of the dancing was done actually against another dancer. And then all the sets we made, you know, we built those so that never felt like you were in a green environment, you know, that you had to take that much of a leap in terms of your imagination. We tried to bring as much home as possible. And it was interesting because what happened was we worked with this great motion, I mean, stand-in, we'd call him, but it's such a reductive phrase, but, um, or, or title, but this actor named Ben Palacios, who was great. And by the second or third week, we just kind of all fell into a groove that we started to understand who Lyle was on set. And we sort of kept him off set until Lyle had to be there. Um, And he did have a somewhat of an armature on for the shape of a crocodile, just so that we knew that he wouldn't walk through walls that he couldn't, or that people would (laughs) move around his head and everything. But, and then um, then what we did was really where Lyle truly came alive was as we came into the booth with Sean Mendez. And as Sean, you know, started to sing these songs and act these songs, you know, he actually turned out to be quite 
a talented interpreter of these songs as an actor. Um, you could feel the soul of him, and we taped him and taped as an old term. We we digitally recorded him and then um, sent those down to our editors. I mean, down to our visual effects team in Australia, which was Method, and really it was like Sean with a little bit of the body movement of the dance doubles and all that, and Ben, and suddenly this character, you know, started to really come alive. So some of this, the personality of his face and his his presence came from Sean's vocal well, 100%, performance. One hundred percent, and and because when he's when you sing, you're you're at your most vulnerable and you're at your most like translucent, and so one of the things that really makes Sean so magnetic is he really, you know, he's, he's performing and acting these, the emotion of these songs. So we didn't want to miss that for sure. So this, this kind of brings me to the other, the, the sort of second part that I hinted at a second ago, which is, this is a very established love piece of property, this story. This is an approach, you know, there's, there's a lot you take directly out of it. And then there's certain things that, that are riffed on, like, making him more of a song and dance, yeah. you know, that he does tricks, I think in the book. Right. But this yeah, is like, yeah. he's a, he's, he's really the singer dancer thing, which brings in Sean and that sort of aspect. I'm curious also though, the, the changes from it, but also I'm sure this property has existed and people have considered making it for some time. How did you get involved and how did you make it? So it was your version. How did you become the, because I'm sure there's been a lot of talk about doing it and people kicking around trying to do it and things like that. I think sometimes we we like things that are just left to the center of full cultural awareness. You know, we have a show that we created on Hulu called Hit Monkey, which is a, a Marvel character ultimately, but had a very short run in the graphic novel space. And that's, it's fun to be able to jump off of a piece of material, but not have to follow every single rule of it because it's so beloved. And I think the thing that's great about mm. Lyle is it was a very important book to both Josh and I, which is why we connected to it. But people kind of know the title, but it's not Paddington or it's not Charlotte's Web, where every single moment is, you know, clocked and revered. And um, the advantage of it is it's a very short piece. I mean, it's for it's the brilliance of it is in sort of in the details that it doesn't quite fill in. And ultimately, so. the book, which is what's so magical about it and what's always magical about children's book is it's a tone. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, Lyle Crocodile, it was, you know, it was written in the 60s when you could live in New York City in a specific way in a brownstone, you know, at a, yeah. an affordable entry point. And yeah. you know, it's really about <laughs> him magically sort of assimilating into the city. You know, there's Lord and Taylor, there's Central Park, there's, you know, the carriage rides. And, and there was always a, a slight kind of tone of melancholy in it because, you know, the author always wrote Lyle as a surrogate that he wished could sort of be with his family while he had a job on Madison Avenue. So there was always this tone that Will and I really connected to. Um, and it felt like a good jumping off point for something joyful and something magical, but also something about otherness and about, you know, acceptance of things that don't appear necessarily right in front of you the way that you want them to. Because there's themes in the book that, you know, he's sort of outcast, you know, he's not welcome, he's feared. And but if you open your heart to him and you don't judge him, he'll change you in ways that you never knew you were. So that felt really timeless to us, and that was like a big guide that we worked on with Will Davies, who adapted the book beautifully. So you guys came with it, like, we want to do this. They didn't come to you. 
And you, no. how long had you had Lyle in mind as like, we want yeah, to do. I mean, we, there was a, there was a version of the movie that had come together almost in different ways with a different producer years ago. And, um, I think the family that's very protective of Bernard, um, Waver's legacy was tentative because they'd been down this road before. So they were a huge mm-hmm. part of us, you know, partnering with and speaking to kind of the care and attention we were going to try to pay, you know, pay to this adaptation and being, you know, somewhat parallel in terms of the themes of the book. And so we optioned the the rights to sort of um, shop it. We developed it uh, again um, with Will Davies, who's a beautiful writer. And, well, an, and an executive at Sony, Brittany Morrissey, who, who was a huge advocate for yeah. it early on. And, you know, Sony had had a chain of title on Lyle only because something about HBO. They'd done an animated, I think, 30 um, minute, 30 musical. minute short yeah. that somehow went to TriStar. And so they had right of first you know, mm. refusal, which means you have to bring it to them first. But they immediately got it. And really through Brittany and Sanford and a lot of people at Sony, they really championed it. And the one slight plot twist that's interesting, we think, but maybe your listeners don't, but is that we adapted it fully just as a live action film. And then what happened is we felt like, you know, while we were, while we were in the midst of that draft, that it would make sense that Lyle would have a performative element because that's a huge part of the picture book. And one thing led to another, and it just made us lean more and more into the idea of this being a musical of sorts. It's a performance-based musical. Um, and we really always had, you know, admired and wanted to work with Pasek and Paul. Um, and, you know, luckily, it was this movie was very sort of charmed in that way, where every first choice we went to sort of magically said yes. And and Justin Paul has, you know, three, now almost four young kids. Thank God. Who, yeah. Who absolutely loved the book. And or we, or we would have never gotten I know. Them. Yeah. And they immediately <laughs> said, yeah, of course we would love to do that. And so, you know, we got we got our, our another sort of amazing uh, you know team to come in. And, and they also helped us at that point because they're so good with the musical theater space. They helped us to sort of develop it again as a as a musical, which has a different sort of narrative engine than a straight movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, you need those those sequences kind of open up emotional reality of the story to the audience. That's kind of the magic of the musical, right? You use those tent poles. And there's also characters can change within a single song, you know, in two and a half minutes, whereas in a normal movie, it can take 10, 20 minutes to do that. So there's an efficiency there that was really interesting, you know? You kind of use the the music to, to convey whatever magical qualities he has. You know, yeah, and I think it was very important to these guys, to Benj and Justin, to make the music feel as diegetic as possible, which is a word that sounds like it's just rolling off of our lips. But it, we learned what that meant, which is that the, when the music is happening, the music is happening. They're on stage. They're it's, a, it's a very film school term. Yeah, <laughs> we, I yes. didn't learn it in film school, but I'm, I'm glad to learn it here, which is it's not a world where everyone's breaking out into song and there's birds. If you walked, yeah, if you walked by, you would actually see them singing, which just meant it was a more grounded real reality kind of based. And that Lyle has a jumping off point of being left with this, you know, digital music player. And that the, the idea is that a lot of this music is coming from his sort of call and response of what he's had to live with as he grew up. It also makes us sound smarter in interviews. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
Okay, so again, going back to a little bit with the rights and stuff, when you you had this kind of, this is a property we like, yeah. we've talked about it. When you first optioned, what, what what kind of steps do you take? Because I think there's a really cool thing about being like, hey, we love this. We think we have a vision for it. We're going to contact the people, you know, the family. We're going to bring it to Sony. You know, we're going to have a shopping agreement, all that. And I think that really speaks to something like if there's something you love out there and you have a vision for it, what, what do you do? Yeah, yeah, it's not uncomplicated. I mean, it, it was helpful. We had an, you know, at our agency, they have a book department. So, you know, you first have to find the rights, track them down, figure out who holds them. And there's a lot more, you know, complications than you think, because a lot of people with material have owned it over time. And sometimes you have to kiss those people in or go back to them to get permission. Thankfully, it was pretty clean, which is it was left with the estate. But then, as we told you, that was a creative dialogue that we were, you know, engaged in with the estate to sort of speak to long, long conversations and Zooms, appropriately so, about, you know, what we wanted to do with it, why we wanted to do with it. Were we going what to exploit it? Over, what think, the intentions know, were. The yeah. other thing that I think just for, you know, for your listeners a little bit, and this is not a new concept, everybody now does it, but. When we started out, it was rare. Um, you know, we've worked over the years in commercials a lot. You know, that was also how we started to get going. And in commercials, you know, you're constantly selling yourself. You're constantly getting on conference calls and, you know, walking through in detail how you're going to protect this, you know, thing that in commercials, the agency has spent probably six months selling to a client. And so you, you have to sort of almost pitch back to them the ideal version of, and you have to sort of have them in your mind while you're pitching. And we also do these very elaborate pitch documents, these decks. So because we've done that, you know, when you work in commercials, sometimes two, three times a month, we're very adept at picking references. And for this one, we actually produced a beautiful book at a book binder and sent that to the estate first with a long letter. That was how we sort of got in the door to get to the conversations that Will was talking about. So yeah. it's, it's often a lot of different approaches to try to show them, oh, this is my vision. This is, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to mess up what has been your family legacy for, you know, 20 years. But years. what's unusual, especially in studio filmmaking, is that is IP that's approached non-cynically. And I'm not saying that to be heroic. I'm just saying that mm. most people that are holding on to material for the right, you know, reason are paranoid about this being something that you're going to exploit, that you're going to take Lyle and turn him into, you know, something that's just, you know, manufactured. Plush, plush toys yeah. and, and eight. I was going to say plush toys, but we actually do have some plush toys. No, I know. So here, here it goes. Um, Where are they? I no, want them. <laughs> I think they made them as a promotional thing. But um, no, I, I think, you know, one of the things early on, and this was something we held on to, is that, you know, Josh and I have a fascination with characters that don't speak. We've always loved Chauncey Gardner and being there. You know, some of the characters in Nick Park's Nick, character, Nick's the, Parks, penguin, the Penguin. Um, our short, our short film that we made after the film that we graduated, the one that really got us going, starred a character that never spoke. Because I think there's something about, I mean, E.T. the Iron Giant. There's something about kind of what you have to impose on these characters or creatures in the absence of them speaking. And it also makes them more soulful. You know what I mean? They're acting with mm -hmm. their bodies and their eyes and not always 
with long exposition. And it's almost like is it- it's almost like a technique that sometimes is used. I mean, in my life, in therapy sessions, where it's like somebody just has to say nothing, and I completely you melt. Down. I melt. So <laughs> I think you know that was a big choice that we made because the book didn't have Lyle speak. You know, that was thankfully something that the studio supported, and it was the thing that we were most afraid of when we gave them the script. We were most afraid that they were going to say, "This go, is great, go make, go make Sonic." Well, yeah, know, which yeah. there's always a place for, and you know. I thought Sonic was amazing, so did Josh. But but the point being is that exactly what you mean, which is that that he was going to be much more attitude than what he needed to be, which was an instrument for change, a catalyst for change. And doing that non-verbally was exciting for us as filmmakers. And then as and then as the songs, you know, would be where he was able to ex- really break through and express. You bring up being non-cynical and it's not just about like sales or products. It's kind of about the whole, like you mentioned, sort of snark, which I love, but like it has a place. And I think that the whole story and approach you had fits the book and that it's a very kind of sweet and genuine world where people come together and, and there's all this, this kind of optimism and joy yeah. spurting out of this, yep. these dynamics. There's no, there's a little darkness around the edges, of course, but like that, that they, there's um, a positivity and that's, that's true to the material. I liked something you said about sell it back that you learned in commercials, like that you learned that what is it that the person here values and loves about this? Yeah. And I have to remind them that I value and love that too. Well, so that they know. You know, look, you can come at a project in many different ways and this is going to sound like, yeah, no kidding, but the more you're honest with just quieting yourself and speaking to why, what your entry point is, even if it's vulnerable or unusual. I think for us in our experience, that's always the best way to approach people that are, you know, protective of handing something to you because I think they want to know that there's a part of you in it and they want to know that you see what they hold dear in that material as something that you're going to be very protective of. And it was really actually sweet and satisfying because the whole family and the grandkids. And I mean, they were all invested, invested, but I was just gonna say they all were at the premiere. You know, they had terrible seats, unfortunately, way up in the balcony. But when we called them out, they all stood and we were, we didn't know there were that many. And it was sort of like, oh my God, the mantle of this, you know, I mean, it's a family heirloom ultimately, right? It's this beloved Mm -hmm. book series that the, you know, that they're the patriarch of the family created and rightly so, they were terrified. I mean, they were they were in that screening probably more anxious than any of us, just thinking, well, is this going to amount to what we believe in? We've seen the trailers. It seems okay. But, you know, are we going to watch Lyle do things that, you know, really betray what, what they held on to? And we were lucky that, that they were really happy. You also mentioned the idea of the non-speaking and the ability to relate and the emotional stuff there. And I, I took my kids to see it in a screening. Okay. And one of the most interesting things to me with the way we emotionally respond to not just the lack of dialogue, but also there's something about a face. It's a non-human, but it's a simple kind of face Yeah, that it's easy to, it becomes a blank slate like that. They, they connect more with that crocodile than with the humans Yo, in a strange sure. yeah. way. Yeah. You talk about that phenomenon, like I felt that way about even char- characters, like, you know, all through time. But there's a way that you just kind of connect with it's a mask or if it's a the simplicity of it. 
Well, I think children are reductive. You know what I mean? And I think they respond to things that are easy delivery devices. I think there's nothing more complicated than a human being, you know, and a human being is unpredictable, right? They can change. They've got a full range of emotions. Not that Lyle doesn't, but there's something very simple and basic because he's an animal. And the truth is, I think we all, you know, most of us have a family pet. Most of us have a dog or cat that we give nicknames to that we imagine are experiencing a full range of emotions that are sometimes very reflective of our own. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's often that I've said to my spouse, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, the dog really needs a hug. And it's like, I'm really speaking about myself. And it feels (laughs) like, you know, that's, I think kids are very much about that kind of connective entry point. I think also, you know, with Lyle, you know, he was a hard character to get right because crocodiles are naturally not the most expressive animals. There are a lot of bone and cartilage and they yeah. don't have, and it took us almost a year of developing him with Method, uh, which is this incredible company down in Australia. And one of the things we sort of found was the how much to make him a crocodile so that he was still intimidating right and could be the character that you fear but really opening up his eyes and making him you know super soulful so i think also there's something wounded about him as a character that i think kids relate to because i think kids it's scary being a kid you know and you're all you always want to kind of relate to something that is expressing emotion that you feel yourself so i think that was really what they connected with how many this is this is an interesting really interesting topic to me because i find so there's so, crocodiles faces in real life they don't express a lot they're kind of always the same expression right <laughs> right so they become an easier canvas of blank a blank canvas cuz you're just like that crocodile's thinking whatever i am yeah. right when i look at it but Lyle in the artwork and Lyle in the movie what was the process of being like cuz you know you're going to you're going to cast humans as the characters and you're going to shoot buildings as the buildings, but there's one element that is an artistic yeah. element that well, is still we, also started, created. I mean, we really started early on almost a year ago with the character from the book, right? So he's a, he's a very specific, he's a wide, you know, first of all, he's a mm-hmm. crocodile. He's a wide kind of face. He's big, but he's not too big. So he's sort of human scale, but he's only, he's always a little bit taller, which we sort of figured would make him awkward and his tail would you know, get caught in doors and there was physical humor that you could have there. And then we started to really develop, you know, you, you, you have different design teams at these companies that are just experts at kind of, and you would describe the qualities that were most important to us. So for us, the eyes were very important and we really wanted to make sure you could connect with them. We didn't want them to be so terrifying all the time that you could, you know, that you were fighting an endless uphill battle, but you also, like I said, he does need to intimidate people so if he's too cute in his rest state then you're going to kind of just go well why doesn't everybody just walk up and hug him right so it was really and it took several months of like they call it iterating but really iterating on all these designs where we all kind of there's that moment where you'll open up your inbox and you go oh okay that i could i could watch a whole movie with that character but in combination to that everything josh just said is Lyle from the book. And I think we wanted that artwork is so special. I think that we wanted to honor it. And I think the ways that we honored it or tried to, um, and hopefully we were successful in doing it is number one is we asked our art director to pull every exact color frame from the book because there's, he worked in about 11 colors 
And then we use that for every choice in the movie. So every sweater, every piece of wallpaper, every piece of furniture, every car on the street is one of those jewel tones from the Lyle palette. So that you felt maybe a little bit subconsciously the spirit of the book in there. And then, as you said, astutely, you know, the artwork, we wanted to honor it because it's so beautiful. And we wanted to honor it as much as we could. So one choice we made early on was that Josh and I felt like Mrs. Prim should illustrate and draw Lyle and we should have Lyle from the book represented all over the house. Um, And we did some new drawings. We used the estates drawings and filmed, uh, you know, framed those, which was thrilling to, you know, to have those on set. One of the funnest things was actually getting our art department to create new new scenarios from the movie on the wall. So that was real. In the book style. Yeah. And then the last thing, because we couldn't get enough of it, um, was we made the end credits both old and new illustrations of Lyle. So some are from the book and some like we had Sean Mendez drawn in the style of Lyle, the illustration, just to try to keep as much of the spirit I mean, of our that. hope, I think, was that, and luckily it's the 60th anniversary right now of the original publishing, so they're reissuing all these books. I think our hope was that people that like the book and sort of watch the movie, remember it, go back and open their copy or buy a new copy. And people that have never you know, seen it, will be drawn back to the material and, and kind of watch it again. Absolutely. Yeah, we came home and reread it. <laughs> After, um, there's, a, there's another thing. I, the color palette, it's, it's something I was not aware of, but as soon as you said it, I was like, of course. Mm-hmm. All those brick tones or those brown, like it was exactly the same color palette, which is excellent. There's only like one scene where together. we we felt like we overdid it, which is, um, <laughs> there's a scene in, Brett Gelman's apartment where they're all sort of being called to task as a neighborhood and there's a shot. That's exactly the one yeah, I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> Mr. Prim and Javier. And we, Josh and I were behind camera and we pulled over the most brilliant costume designer, which is Kim Barrett, who's amazing and Australian, has done stuff for Baz Luhrmann and the, she did The Matrix, etc. And we pulled her over and we said, we just want to let you know that every single character of our leads are wearing acorn colored pants in a row. <laughs> and she was like, that's not true. One is actually lighter acorn. One is actually like, that's not even mustard. You know, it's like, so it's kind of a great, you know, like a, there yeah. were times where it would tip the balance, but um, we, we were trying to be covert partners to and, that palette. And I think another, another sort of hidden, besides those little choices, another hidden weapon for us was our DP who's an incredible sort of legendary Spanish DP named Javier Agorcerobe, who really came in and gave the movie its tone. Yeah. You know, it's got a very specific kind of lighting. Um, we referenced movies like Amelie from 25, 30 years ago and movies that had been made in France and Spain around that time, of some of which he had worked on. He's an absolutely stunning DP, did everything from The Others to, you know, five movies with Javier. Bardem back in the day. So he was a perfect tool for it, but he really lit it in a way that was very tonally kind of moody and beautiful. So those are a lot of responses to how to honor the book, but that's what we tried to do. Yeah, no, I mean, I was think I can't, is Amelie really 25 years old? That's, that's rough to think about. Um, but I, I was just thinking the other way you honored it was that Lyle holds himself in a way that's similar to the book particularly like when he's holding his tail yeah. like, <laughs> and he's scared. There's like these little physical things that, that you honored that, that convey things that are like exactly the emotional state. So I, I imagine in a lot of ways you used those plates 
as as a guy. Yeah, well, we yeah. thought a lot about that gesture specifically besides sort of being something from the book. We always interpreted as, you know, he was abandoned, you know, and, and kind of had to raise himself a little bit in the attic. We sort of thought that he always had to comfort himself because there was nobody there to kind of do it. And so like holding his tail was like a, like a security blanket. But we're also kind we're, of broke your heart. We're both big dogs. Yeah. We're both dog fans. Yeah. And the idea of there's nothing cuter than when a dog actually makes itself warm by, you know, swirling themselves into a donut. So we wanted to make sure Lyle did that as well. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk. Yeah, we're, we're, sure. we're, we're big fans of your work. So we feel really. Oh, well, thank you. That's um, I, I, I appreciate that very much, and uh, good luck with the rest of the day in Madrid and the release and everything. Thank and you. Thank you. Fingers we'll, crossed. We'll, Tell your we'll friends. Best. Yes. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Will and Josh, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Lyle, Lyle Crocodile, for being such a friendly crocodile. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. We have all kinds of filmmaking, education, news, tools, tips, tricks, you name it, at nofilmschool.com. And of course, everything goes to those social media channels that you love so much. This podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe. We do these interviews once a week, usually coming out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And we do a weekly show where we round up all the news in entertainment, plus some really good questions that often come from within our team or from some of you. Those are released on Thursdays and or Fridays. So check those out. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe, like I said, to all the things, no film school. And send us your questions and your comments and your thoughts. Send them to editor at nofilmschool.com. We love to hear from you. We like to hear what you're working on. We want to hear what we got wrong. We want to hear what we got right, of course. But uh, we also want to hear what you want to know more about. And we'll try to figure it out and answer. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.